this is Gabrielle Roberts, and I'm joined by my co-host Ariana Roberts, and you're listening to Arcana Imperii. Today we're going to be continuing our series on looking at the candidates running for the 3rd District of Massachusetts. Today's interviewee will be Alexandra Chandler, and she was a former intelligence analyst and a lawyer. <coughs> Thank you, Alexandra, so much for coming on the show. Um, so, first question, what made you decide to run for this seat? Well, to me, it's a critical moment for our country. And I looked at my professional background, my lived experience, and I realized I would be the most effective to get things done in Congress for working class, middle class people, and that I was the only candidate in the race that had career national security expertise. And really, it's the longer answer is that it's a continuation of the service that has defined my life since September 11, 2001. That day, I was living in New York City. I was a law student, and I was living in a tiny apartment studio with my then-girlfriend, my high school sweetheart, who's now my wife. Mm-hmm. And she was on a subway train under Lower Manhattan when the towers came down. And I spent three hours not knowing if she had made it. And that day, in those hours, when I was screaming, crying, begging um, the universe to bring her home to me, I declared to myself that if she came back, I would change the rest of my life going forward, dedicated to service in some way. That's why I joined the intelligence community from 2004 to 2016, 2017, sorry. And it's in that spirit, that spirit of service, that when I felt that I had to answer a call, as I answered a call then, I had to do it in this race. Oh, so uh, Republicans seem to mainly want to talk about immigration. What's the main issue you want to talk about to voters? I want to talk about living wage jobs and the cost of living, primarily. Those, Those are the primary ones, along with the opioid epidemic, gun safety, combating climate change. And these are a combination of kitchen table immediate issues that overwhelming majority of people know that we need to deal with. So many people have a job, but the problem is often they have to have two or three to make ends meet and to deal with just simple emergencies. And my platform is about policies to ensure that every full-time job in the country is a living wage job. We're a wealthy country, we can do it. But it's not just about the pay that people get. It's about what it costs to be a person in Massachusetts and America today between the cost of housing, the cost of childcare, the cost of healthcare. So I have a whole set of policies to address that. And of course, the opioid epidemic, because another thing that is in my background that drives me forward is that my father, when I grew up, my birth father, he was often between jobs. And he struggled with addiction, from alcohol to prescription drugs. He had multiple sclerosis. And all of this was part of why I lost him when I was 17. So I take that very seriously. But it's we also have a politics that is so broken that we can't deal with the systemic challenges, like combating climate change, or the things where overwhelming majorities of Americans agree, like on gun safety. And yet, we can't move forward in Congress. So part of why I wanted to run I talk about service, and I talk about someone who can work effectively and get things done. I served under Bush, under Obama, 
and under Trump. I had to work with Republicans and Democrats. I had to work across government. I had to write articles for presidential daily brief under multiple administrations. I had to represent us abroad, sometimes to unfriendly places, not just work with like-minded Democrats in Massachusetts. So I think I'm someone who can both be tough, but can also use the power of relationships to actually move things forward. Um, you mentioned as one of your top priorities being climate. On your website, you also yes. said you support the 100 by 50 Act, which proposes to have 100% renewable energy by 2050. Do you believe that this is simply going to be done by solar, wind, or other methods? Or do you think nuclear is also part of the mix? Nuclear is a part of the mix as a last resort if we can't get what we need out of solar, wind, geothermal, hydro. I'd rather maximize the potential of all of those before resorting to nuclear. I would say that the, the catastrophic changes that face us ahead in, clim- in even mild climate change scenarios are such that we can't exclude the possibility. But I'd rather launch a Manhattan Project-style effort to borrow from the nuclear analogy on renewables and rather get them, get battery performance, get smart grid technology, get our rate of capture from solar and wind and hydro and geothermal up and see what we can do there. So what about new nuclear reactors that are inherently safe, like pebble bed reactors or sodium reactors? Yeah, I mean, there are technologies which have promise. They do, certainly. And I would not exclude those from the mix. What I'm simply saying is that such as we have choices to make in terms of investments and where we might want to see the most transformative leaps in technology, again, something where Massachusetts is so well positioned because when it comes to wind in particular as well as solar, we're, we're already well off. So I would have us selfishly, when it comes to federal policy, I'd be doubling down there. But I'm not, I'm not dogmatic about the matter. That's why I would say I would not exclude nuclear as a possibility. It's just something that I would not seek at the outset. I'd rather try to get there with other sources. And then if we have to, yeah, we go down that road. Thorium, thorium reactors too. I mean, this is something that has some potential, certainly. So are you for Cape Wind? Yes, with, with some potential modification. But the, the thing is for me, it's that much as certain stakeholders have had issues with the project. It's, I believe we're in a place overall when it comes to climate change that we, we do need to, we, we can't exclude the potential of such resources. There's currently a lawsuit accusing Harvard of violating federal civil rights laws by having positive and negative racial preferences that end up discriminating against Asian Americans. The lawsuit has been fought by anti-affirmative action groups and is supported by the Trump administration. This is also being used as a wedge issue to shatter the Democrats' coalition. Where do you stand on this issue? Should we have race-blind admission for schools? Without knowing the specific fact pattern of the case itself, I wouldn't want to comment on the case itself. I do support the use of affirmative action in college admission simply because we have such structural problems of opportunity in this country that also track by race and that colleges and universities need to be able to target 
populations for recruitment that are otherwise so underrepresented and that then if you don't do that, you don't have the fullest possible, most enriching possible experience in the diversity of a student body for all the benefit of all the students, not just those that are admitted. Again, can't really comment on the specifics of this case because I am I will do what I suppose politicians are not supposed to do, which is to say, I don't know when it comes to that current that, that specific case because I'm just simply not familiar with the facts of it. Um, you mentioned before about working in the National Intelligence Service. What has been your reaction when the Director of National Intelligence, Dan Coates, raises the alarm on growing cyber attack threats against the United States, saying the warning lights are blinking red again? Well, he's completely correct. And I think just today, um, Facebook and possibly some other internet service providers mentioned that they are um, removing some sites or other activity that has the hallmarks of a foreign influence campaign. I'm under a lifelong obligation to not disclose classified information, but what I can say is that I was still in the intelligence community when the reports of Russian interference were coming in. And I can say unequivocally that I agree with the DNI's conclusion. I agree that it's not only a matter of Russia interfered past tense, but Russia is interfering current tense, present tense. And what I'm particularly concerned by is that 2018 might actually be more of a test bed where they can use certain practices, test out certain weaknesses, but they might reserve yet additional methodology for the 2020 election. So it's just something that is now an ongoing feature of our national security landscape. And we need to harden our election processes. We are completely remiss when it comes to that. There's been legislation in the House that would appropriate money to do that, to have election machines with an audible paper trail, other measures, and absolute negligence that we have not done that at the federal level. And then meanwhile, at the state and local level, more needs to be done right down to the precinct level to make sure that we're doing all we can to be mindful and vigilant. Is the danger to is to not just hacking emails, but to election security, for instance, deleting or altering voter registrations, changing votes, or disrupting power infrastructure in cities to target urban voters. Would that result in a do-over for the election? Would that make the election less legitimate? What can we do when funding is not being allowed for security? Constitutionally, I know of no provision that would allow a do-over for um, at least federal election. What I would say is that the term when it comes to Russian interference, running foreign interference, but particularly the Russians who we know are interfering right now, it's both on the potential for modifying registration data, the potential for possibly even changing votes, but what what's genius, and I, I have to admire the approach as a former professional, even as I resent it, is that it's the threat of it. And it's not, it's people not necessarily knowing or believing 100% in the results, even if they don't do anything further. It's that if people just find a result incredulous, there will be a question, did the Russians do this? And if that's hanging over our democracy for at least some time to come. The other part of it is, of course, the manipulation of our social media. And particularly what I can see happening in this 
election cycle as well as the next is they've, they've very much played out this whole trying to feed certain stories that they know through analytics and through carefully studying culture and politics that have the prospect to divide us and inflame certain political and social divides. But what they can also do are um, really frighteningly effective tools in um, manipulating video and manipulating sound so that people could be appeared to say things on video that they didn't say, that sort of thing. And, and that's the sort of thing where we're going to have to really be training ourselves both as a society, you know, as adults in the society, but also our kids going through schools, all of us, on how to spot this sort of thing, how to truly think critically and analyze critically and be skeptical consumers of information more than any people have had to be in human history. It's We, we can kind of be very harsh on ourselves about this, but you know, some of these technological developments, it's they are wholly new, but we have to catch up with that. You speak of putting in place policies to bolster the middle class. Specifically, what are some things you do? I will start from my perspective as a mom, that I have two kids. One is six in the neighborhood public school, and one is two is in daycare. And I moved from D.C. when I was in intelligence community, placed the number one daycare cost in the country highest, to Massachusetts second highest. I would support legislation that would give families grants through the tax code, tax credit deductions, that would ensure that your child care for your children would be capped at no more than 10% of your overall income. Because what I see happening, and I'm, I just turned 40, I'm 41, but I very much have the Gen X and millennial typical story of my wife and I, we had to delay having kids much longer than we wanted to, delay buying a house much longer than we wanted to because of the price of child care. And even now, we have two kids, but we would have three by now, except, frankly, we have to wait for our youngest to get out of daycare to be able to afford the daycare on a third. So this, this story is very much our story. And then, in a similar vein, something in terms of the cost of living, I would go to healthcare, Massachusetts has among the highest healthcare costs in the country. Because what you have right now are too many families where, yes, they have health insurance, but their deductibles are still so high that they're still rationing their medical care. They're still deciding, well, I won't go to the doctor for this. Well, I won't get the medication for that. And that harms the health of people, the overall health of this country. And meanwhile, it's in fact very real economic cost, whether they decide ultimately to pay a ridiculous cost for prescription drugs that we should be negotiating from a position of strength with the single care system, or whether they choose to forego the medication and then they incur costs because they're going to be sick from work more often or fall into a short-term disability situation. So these are some of the practical measures. And then there are other things like I, I do believe that we should expand the earned income tax credit, which is a policy approach that at different times, both President Obama and Speaker Paul Ryan have both been in favor of. So surely there's a consensus that can be found there. And the whole point, the, the principle of that is, if you're not familiar, it, this is a provision in the tax code where families that are the working poor, but 
I would be extending this into working class and even into middle class, where if your wage is low enough, but you are in a high cost area or you have one kid, two kids, three kids, that this will help support you. This will be a top off benefit to ensure that you have a living wage. And that that coupled with our Massachusetts raising of our minimum wage can get us to the point where maybe we don't end poverty in this country, but we ter- we certainly do get a lot closer to doing So would you help middle class families afford college as one way to help with the certainly. Certainly. And I have a few measures on that. First, the federal government should not be profiting from our federal subsidized loans. I say ours because I have them. I will have an ongoing relationship with the federal direct loan program for decades to come. And uh, the likes of Sally May and Great Lakes are names very well familiar to my wife and I. So I am I am in this boat myself. So I would look to that. I would expand the federal public loan forgiveness program, public service loan forgiveness program. Right now, you have to serve ten years in a public service capacity to get any loan forgiveness whatsoever. I would be looking to shorten that period to something like five years, as well as explore the potential of a get benefit as you go program. And then on the cost side for education, I I believe in a federal program, and it's this is where it gets a little complicated because you can't compel the state to make their colleges and universities tuition free. But what you can offer is a very robust um, kind of matching fund program where you say to states, if you offer tuition free community college or four year degrees, the federal government will match the funds nine to one or something along those lines. And then that's a way that you can get debt free and tuition free college. And I would at the very least like to see community college, if not four year colleges as well, to at least have that as an option within every single state university system. Because we Every student, every child, as they're coming up to the education system, should have the opportunity to attend higher and advanced education, whether it's community college, four-year degree, or um, vocational training programs. All of that should be available. And frankly, it's an economic benefit to society. It will pay for itself over time with enhanced productivity. So one way to get more education in uh, Massachusetts, would you make it be forcing state schools to take in more in-state students? I haven't really looked at that as a policy option. I'd want to study the economic implications, the implications for the quality of the students. I just haven't examined it nor have I seen any analysis on the topic. Okay, so um, I'll give a brief explanation of it. So basically what it's saying is that state schools either take in-state students or out-of-state students, and they'll get more money from taking out-of-state students versus in-state students. So should you force them to take more in-state students because they technically serve the state? What I would want to look at, which I don't have, would be the admission rate for in-state and out-of-state students. I'd want to know if we are suffering in Massachusetts from a problem of in-state students systemically being denied places at state universities 
that are going to out-of-state students, and it's because of the financial benefit, which I, I don't have that information, so I want to know that before I proceed. Okay. There has been a lot of criticism about money coming from outside of the 3rd District, uh, even outside of Massachusetts, and too much donations from big money donors. You have raised over $100,000 towards your congressional campaign for the 3rd District, with a median donation of $27, both for the quarter and since announcing your run for Congress. Of the total two-quarter contributions, 22% were $10 or less, and with 42.7% of these donations coming from Massachusetts. Has your campaign targeted more grassroots donors? Do you feel that there is too much money in politics, and if so, how do you reduce this? Our, our campaign has targeted grassroots donors very deliberately in that I'm, I'm running for Congress to serve, not just to be in Congress. And I believe I will be the most effective representative possible if I am brought to Congress by the people that I want to serve, by working class and middle class people. So what I've done is when we solicit money, which I, any money in politics taints the candidate that receives it. So I, I do not preach this from a position of superiority. It's we're trying to mitigate damage here. What I believe is that by soliciting money via email, when I'm posting online, talking about things that I want to do and saying, if you believe in this, here's where you can click and donate. That that as primary means of raising money versus targeting people who can give me $2,700 at a time and spending hours and hours and hours on the phone with mostly those people. It's no disrespect to those people, but it's that I believe that that kind of donation model will distort your perception as to what the most important issues are and will create, even unconsciously, a sense of indebtedness to a certain subset of people with a certain subset of needs and priorities versus that of the majority of one's future constituents. So that, that's been how, the how and the why of how we've financed the campaign. And I feel very good about it. I mean, it's, I will say, to the final part of the question, as I recall, I do believe that we have a tremendous problem with money in politics, both in this race and in the country overall. And it's part of why pretty early in the campaign, I believe it was back in January, I signed something called the Candidates with a Contract Pledge, which pledges me on pain of resignation from Congress within a year of getting there if I have not introduced or co-sponsored legislation to overturn Citizens United and promote fun publicly funded elections. Because I do believe that the, the disengagement from politics, the reason why we have such low voter turnout, the reason why um, elections are often viewed as voting for the you know, least of bad options, the least bad option, I believe a lot of that is because of money in politics, because the preferences of voters are failing more and more to be reflected in the policies that are actually passed. And, I mean, to, to give some examples, things we talk about, if you poll voters and say, 
do you support caps on child care costs? Do you support single-payer health system? Do you support universal paid family leave? Majorities of Americans support these, let alone say gun safety. But the issue is that the lobbies are against all of these things, whether corporate lobbies, whether the NRA, whether other organizations, are so much stronger and they have so much more money. So the will of the people gets denied. And eventually people decide, well, maybe I just shouldn't bother voting. And it's that root cause is money in politics, which is why I'm so determined to get it out of politics. So what you're saying is there are strings attached to large donors. For example, if a candidate takes a donation from a construction company and then pushes policies for infrastructure, are they serving the people or their donors? At the very least, there is a perception problem. And at the worst, there are strings attached. It's really, to me, more that it creates uncertainty. It's uncertain where a politician's loyalty lies. Because, I mean, to give an example, if, if someone's elected to Congress and there's a whole bunch of construction-type money or something behind him or her, it may still make sense for the country to pass a $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill that construction companies would be very glad to see happen. It might still be the right thing to do. But there's the question, was it because of the donations or was it because it was the right thing to do? And then, of course, there's so many other scenarios where it would be, well, the voters really wanted that universal paid family leave, but then because you had accepted donors from XYZ corporate lobby that decided that that would be too expensive, and then you didn't prioritize it. So it's the corruption or the appearance of corruption can come in a whole spectrum, in a whole different levels of intensity. But in any case, I just think money should be out of politics, and then we won't have to wonder or worry about whose interests our politicians serve. So why do you think the 2018 midterm elections are different from all the other midterm elections in the past? The backdrop of Russian interference in the prior election is a wholly new thing. The movement after the 2016 election of women, of people of color, of younger people into the political process and as candidates, that may well be also unprecedented. And it's not necessarily that this election is not like any other elections, but the, the, the political moment is in ways unlike any other, in that we now have so many people that are new to politics, both running for office and in very serious activist roles and just activating their communities. That is something that I don't know if it's unlike any other time in U.S. history, but it's certainly unlike any other time in my lifetime. And I'm very humbled and proud to be a part of it even in my small way. And the people that are behind this campaign, the volunteers, the activists, all of it, it's just, it's, it's an honor to be with such people. Will there be oversight on Trump only if Democrats win? I think there is a better chance of effective oversight on Trump if Democrats win. So far, I am not satisfied with the quality of oversight that the House GOP in particular 
but some also the Senate Chafee Summit Center, but particularly the House has provided in either the House Permanent Subcommittee on Intelligence as well as um, other committees of jurisdiction, where I do believe that they are not taking it seriously the small investigation as they should, let alone just other activities of the administration that are questionable. I mean, before he resigned, the activities of Secretary Pruitt, for instance, it's just Congress is not living up to its constitutional role, and it needs to. And I believe the Democrats have a much better prospect of doing that based on the pronouncements and the commitments that we're making to the voters. I know I, for one, am someone who was in the intelligence community for 13 years. If I'm elected to Congress, I will certainly do all I may to ensure that we are diligently taking all lessons learned we can from the 2016 election, that whatever the Mueller investigation uncovers, that we pursue the facts wherever they take us and that we change our processes accordingly and hold people accountable if there are mistakes. Paul Ryan said that the book that most influenced him in life was Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. Donald Trump said that his favorite book was All Quiet on the Western Front. W. Bush said his favorite book was the Bible, and Hillary Clinton mentioned the Brothers Karamazov. What books would you recommend to young people as a must-read before going to college? What book had a huge impact on your life? Well, it's, it's not particularly highbrow or clever, I guess, but it's just the honest answer, and it's a sentimental one, too. Fellowship of the Ring. It's Jared Tolkien, and I just, for me... I, I remember when I read it, and it was one of those books that my, again, my birth father, who's now deceased, just always pushed on me as a, you have to read it, it's a sense of adventure, and this other world, and maybe it's partially because I grew up as a closet transgender kid, but the idea of a different world, you know, a different space, I think sometimes, particularly in the world as it stands today, without being a So huge fans of Lord of the Rings. We named our dog Gandalf. Oh, you understand them. <laughs> yeah. You understand. I mean, yes. oh, I, all right. I will, you having said that, I, I will offer this up that that's just the beginning. I have the <laughs> Silmarillion, the Unfinished Tales. You know, I, oh, yeah. Exactly. That's so cool. <laughs> Anna's nerding out over here. She's like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you like the movies? I did. The well, Fellowship Two Towers and Return. Uh, so you know, some things, but there's some liberties taken. So I, I was mentioning how, in hindsight, kind of problematic that you didn't have other than Galadriel in the background, strong women characters, and Eowyn at the, the end. I. Arwen role that they wrote in, on one level I found that satisfying, of course, but on another level it was just, oh, 
favorite books is Henry V, right? You played uh, Henry V <laughs> during... We, we met at Pfeiffer's Day. You remember. Yes. I, I, hope, I hope you have that somewhere because that was, even though we only captured the end of it, that was amazing. Yes, that... I've never met a politician who's been able to recite Shakespeare like that. Oh, gosh. Well, I'm I'm kind of new at the politician thing. I still think of myself mostly as recovering lawyer and recovering intelligence analyst. Do you want to recite it? Or? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I, I will say to, to the question, though, yes, Henry is among my favorite of the history plays, yes, and, and just as a piece of literature. Well, so uh, we don't want to take up any more of your time. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Oh, gosh. And talking oh, no, to us. no, it's a pleasure. Such, such a pleasure. I hope you're getting from the end when we're talking Tolkien and Henry. Um, this is, it has been both, you know, serious and discussing issues, but also fun. And I was, I was looking forward to this. I was glad that we finally got the time to work and everything. And I, I look forward to seeing what's going to happen. Good luck, and I guess, uh, good Thank night. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes, it's it's almost exactly five weeks, so we're getting quite close. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's amazing. Um, some days you you blink and you feel like you just started this yesterday, mm-hmm. and then other days it's, I have been doing this for seventeen years, and that it's just it is everything in between. Uh, good luck on your campaign. Thanks. And. I hope to talk to you again sometime before the election.